Thank you so much, Kelly, for being here. Uh, welcome to the Curious Expression podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to have you here. Um, so I know that yoga is a very big part of your life, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your yoga journey. Where did it all kind of begin? Yeah, so I actually fell into yoga by accident. Um, I was interested in teaching exercise classes, but I've always been the type of person who wants that like big, pumping, loud music, work really hard type of class. Um, but I had taken a couple of yoga classes myself in high school and college. And so when I went to go get my certifications, I went ahead and added one for yoga. And then when I started applying for gyms, it turns out that's what they were looking for. So I uh, said, okay, well, you know, I need the job. I need the money. I, I want the exercise. So I will take the yoga class. And the very first yoga class that I ever taught, I showed up and they were like, so um, we're going to be filming your class today for the news. Uh, there's a bunch of, uh, we're in Fresno, so there's a bunch of Fresno State college football players that are going to be taking your class because um, they want to talk about how yoga could help with their uh, injury prevention and flexibility. And I was like completely blindsided. I literally had, I don't know, five, 10 minutes notice. Um, I was like, okay. <laughs> so we dived in and it ended up being fantastic because the players were just, you know, so open-minded and funny because half of the poses they could not do, but they were trying their hardest. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a really great icebreaker into teaching. Mm -hmm. And so then from there, I just picked up classes. Um, obviously, I had a regular weekly class, but I picked up more and more classes as I taught more and started to uh, become friendlier with students and recognize students and uh, get really good feedback from students. And then um, after about six years of teaching, then I transitioned to a different city. And so I started filming yoga. And that's been a whole different part of the journey. And um, that's still something that I'm working on. It's a, it's a never ending project. <laughs> So that's kind of where I am now. I've shifted gears from, I still really like live classes. In fact, I probably prefer them. Um, but filming yoga gives you a little bit more flexibility to do it in your own time. What's your favorite part about instructing yoga? Man, it's really hard to pick one. Um, if I had to pick, it would probably be hearing positive feedback from people and saying, wow, I've noticed an increase in my strength, an increase in my balance. Um, I feel better. My back, knee, shoulder, whatever pain seems to have gone away. Um, and of course, that isn't me. That is really their hard work paying off. But it is wonderful to hear the the antidotes from people saying, you know, this is, this is making an impact on my life. You mentioned earlier that you kind of uh, had a lot of pressure on you during your first, uh, you know, teaching opportunity. Uh, do you feel like sometimes that's like the best way we can kind of learn or that's like kind of something that has to happen? I feel like sometimes you have to be thrown into the water. Otherwise, uh, you just don't reach where you really actually need to be. Totally. I mean, I think as with everything, 
especially with yoga, it's all about balance, right? So yes, it helps to have a little bit of pressure. Um, throughout the years that I taught, I probably improved my practice more than I would have on my own because I knew people were watching me. But with all things, it's kind of a fine line. So as soon as you start to cross over, that pressure can be too much. Um, and it can either learn lead to things like burnout, or you could actually be physically impacted if you're trying to do a pose that you as a teacher are not prepared to do. So it's a fine line. Um, I do think it's important to have a little bit of pressure and, and like you said, be, be thrown into the fire. Um, but, and again, this, this goes all back to yoga, right? It's about like learning about yourself. So you need to, in your practice, learn your, uh, your edge is what a lot of teachers will call it. Um, and that applies both physically and in your mental status. So if you are teaching or if you're practicing, you have to be aware of what is a good amount of pressure, both mentally and physically, and what is too much and I need to back off. Speaking of pressure, I've heard of like something called hot yoga. So like are there so there's like different types of yoga, I guess. Is hot yoga like the one that's like the most intense? Yeah. So I love that you asked that because this is probably one of my more uh, fun controversies that I like to get into. Um, so you've probably heard of things like hot yoga, Bikram, Ashtanga, um, Kundalini, like all these different kinds of yoga. And in your brain, they, they may or may not represent something to you. Um, hot yoga originally was associated with Bikram, which is a very, very stringent practice. It is the same poses every single time. It's 90 minutes. It's kind of known for being aggressive. Like you, you can't leave the class and come back. Uh, you can take a break in the class, but you can't leave and come back. Um, and then that started to evolve. And so now they have flow classes that it's still hot. The room is still heated, but it's maybe not heated as high as uh, Bikram. Bikram's usually like around 105. Although one time I took a class and the teacher wasn't paying attention to the thermometer and we got up to, I think, 113. And I was like, oh, my gosh, come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I love talking about this because if you look at the eight limbs of yoga, there are uh, pieces that apply to your, your mental state, pieces that apply to your kind of spiritual or religious state. And then there is the branch Hatha yoga. And a lot of people have heard or seen classes titled Hatha yoga, and they assume that it will be a more relaxed yoga um, still working through the physical asanas, but uh, not as aggressive, not as heart pumping as like Ashtanga, which is a pretty fast paced uh, kind of yoga. And really, Hatha is just the physical asanas. So every single kind of yoga out there is what I would just call a brand. Ashtanga is a brand. There's, of course, an incredibly famous yogi that started the brand. Um, but it's not, it still falls under the umbrella of Hatha yoga. And so I like to talk about this with people. And of course, a lot of people will argue with me about it and that's fine. But I like to talk about this with people because 
If you just remember that the poses are under the umbrella of Hatha, it takes away a lot of the pressure that we were talking about. And you can now perform all those poses in whatever speed, whatever uh, order you want, and you can still feel good about your own individual practice because you are still practicing the physical postures of yoga or Hatha yoga. And the whole point of Hatha yoga is to help you find uh, the, the ability to get more in tune with the other branches of yoga. Mm. You do the physical postures so that you can find more mental clarity, spiritual clarity, whatever it is that you're looking for in some of these other areas of yoga. And those other areas are hardly ever talked about. We always, especially here in the U.S., we always talk about the physical side, but really we're kind of missing the boat. We're missing the point if we're practicing and not practicing with the intention of reaching some of these higher non-physical goals. Yeah, I've always had that opinion, especially being from India. So, like, I know that, you know, yoga, the ultimate goal is to kind of connect with, like, a divine source and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, it's just, it's always been interesting looking at how, in the West, we kind of treat yoga sometimes. We treat it like a workout, right? We don't yeah. treat it like, really, it should be a bridge to the next step in our lives. And we don't mm-hmm. treat it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with using it as a workout. I think that's definitely oh, sure. a good thing. Yeah. But I do think we have to be careful about crossing the line from using it as a workout that benefits us to then using it as a competition. Mm. Because especially in the US, we are so competition based. I mean, we have some of the most impressive sports um, leagues and whatnot, you know. We we love sports. We love competition. So I think mm-hmm. it's hard for a lot of people here to remember, this is for me. And I don't even need to be competing against myself. I need to mm-hmm. do what feels best and what helps me the most. And again, sometimes that is not going as far or as long or hard or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> as you might think you should. Mm-hmm. And so somebody like me who maybe doesn't do yoga um, and is just starting out. So I shouldn't focus on the brand. I should just focus on the poses. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think for someone who is just starting out, you should probably go check out a few different yoga studios and check out what their brand is. It might turn out that you really like hot yoga, but maybe you like the flow version of hot yoga versus the Bikram version of hot yoga. Mm. Or maybe you're a really athletic person and you really like Ashtanga, but you won't know that until you've tried some of these different brands. And you can do that, you know, in a studio or you can do that online. There's lots of different options online. Mm -hmm. Um, But the biggest thing for beginners is remembering to breathe and move. If you are holding your breath and trying to move, that is the only, only way that you can do yoga wrong. There is no way that you can do a pose wrong, right? I mean, yes, you could do it in a manner that you might get injured. We want to avoid that. But everyone is in a progression in the pose. There is no perfect pose and there is no wrong pose. It's just a journey through the pose. 
The only way to do the pose wrong is if you're not breathing. Mm. And even advanced yogis forget this. I do all the time. Um, When I have a, a practice that I do in the morning, every morning, it's five minutes. So I keep it really short. There's no excuse not to do it. And the whole point is to feel how I feel, which in the mornings, you tend to feel a little bit stiffer, right? So it's a little bit more noticeable to feel Mm -hmm. everything in your body. Mm -hmm. And I just focus on breathing. And I will tell you probably three, four days out of the week, I get halfway through and I'm like, I'm I'm not really paying attention to this. I should probably refocus on my breath. So this is not just a, a tidbit for beginners, but even advanced yogis, we all have to remember to breathe through the poses. Um, and then, yeah, the next, the next thing is just to show up and try them and work through the, the journey of the pose and see what feels good for you. Um, make sure you're not looking at the person next to you or the teacher and thinking that what they're doing is going to feel good for you because everyone is different. Not only are we different in our, um, in our journey, but our physical bodies are built differently. Our joints are built differently. Mm. Our strengths and our flexibility are different. So you cannot compare yourself to the person next to you or to the teacher and think you're doing it wrong because you're doing what is right for your body. Mm-hmm. So speaking of different, like, so, you know, I'm a guy and I think one of the biggest barriers that has always been for me in terms of starting yoga is like I think in I think yoga is sometimes seen as like something that women do uh not something like a guy thing guys are more like you know I'm gonna go to the gym and lift weights and things like that so what advice would you give to maybe a guy that's interested in starting to yoga um and maybe getting over those like maybe psychological barriers um and is there a particular type of yoga that like maybe guys should do Okay, so it's really funny you say that because earlier I was talking about I love getting feedback from people. Some of the best and kind of most amusing pieces of feedback that I've gotten are usually from guys. And after class, they're drenched in sweat and they're usually a little bit, a little pink in the cheeks, you know, and they come up to me and they're like, uh, that's not what I was expecting. That was really hard. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah. I know. (laughs) So I think, you know, for guys, they need to recognize that the same amount of effort that they can put into lifting weights or, you know, sprinting or CrossFit or something like that, they can put that same amount of mental focus into yoga and create a huge challenge, a huge, um, I'm going to say strain, but not in a bad way, a challenge to your muscles, right? Um, And for guys, it's probably more important than uh, other types of exercise because most men don't have as much flexibility as women do. Part of that is cultural. Part of that is you guys aren't really taught to focus on flexibility and, oh, having nice long limbs. Like that's, you guys don't get that message from, Mm -hmm. you know, society, whereas women do. So we focus Mm -hmm. on those things. But the reality is, if you want to continue lifting heavy, if you want to continue, um, you know, racing at your top speed in order to prevent injury and in order for you to have better range of motion. um, So to improve your overall sport, 
yoga really is one of the best options for you. So that being said, the type of yoga, you know, I would honestly recommend for a lot of these guys to probably try yin yoga. Yin Mm -hmm. yoga is focused a little bit more on lengthening the body, range of motion. But the key is you hold the poses for like an absurd amount of time. Even me, usually you hold the poses anywhere from five to 10 minutes. So even me, after two, three minutes, I'm like, ha, this is burning. <laughs> I don't know if I can keep doing this. Um, but that's what a lot of guys would benefit from, right? Because they would get the increased flexibility, increased range of motion. Mm-hmm. The guys aren't going to do that. So if we want to just like break them into yoga, they're probably going to love a flow class, a power yoga class, an ashtanga class. Those are all fast paced, a lot of focus on strength. So it'll play into somebody's interest in, you know, weightlifting or whatnot. Um, and definitely a, a, a sweaty class, even if it's not hot yoga, it's still, I mean, you are really burning calories and working through the poses. It's, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. So like, what are some of like the biggest like beginner mistakes that you see people make? Yeah, well, aside from forgetting to breathe, I think the the biggest um, next biggest issue is probably that competitive nature. You know, mm-hmm. you can practice yoga with your eyes closed, and I have actually done classes like that, and it feels amazing, but it's really hard, right? So a beginner is not going to practice with their eyes closed. So they are going to see the person next to them. They are going to see the teacher, even if they're, you know, practicing at home. They're probably watching a video, so they're going to compare themselves to the teacher. Um, now, when I taught, I usually try to give levels. So I will work through my flow and we'll do one uh, one flow, one vinyasa through level one. And then the next one will add on and you'll have the option to go to level two and so on and so forth. Well, a lot of times beginners will assume, oh, okay, I'm going to go to level two. She's offering level two. She's doing yoga at level two. So I'm going to do it. Mm. But a lot of times they're not ready. And for a variety of reasons, maybe they don't have a lot of focus yet, haven't been practicing yoga yet for a long time. So they haven't practiced a lot of focus. So maybe they're a little bit bored. So they're looking to move on to the next level because they want to keep things new and fresh and interesting. And that's fine. And I I understand that perspective, but you're not necessarily doing yourselves any favors by jumping to a level that you're not ready for. Mm -hmm. So it's funny because beginner mistakes are really interconnected with beginner teacher mistakes. So Mm -hmm. when I first started teaching, I would, you know, verbally say, this is for level two. You know, you don't have to go to this level. If you're new, stick with level one. And I would say it over and over and over throughout practice. But the thing is, people don't listen. In a yoga class, they're looking, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And it wasn't until I started doing more online stuff and I practiced with a lot of other teachers that I started seeing, okay, the teacher is actually verbally introducing level two, three, et cetera but she's still doing level one. And what that does is it gives the opportunity for a beginner, te- a beginner student to visually see 
that it's okay to stick with this simpler level. And then because they aren't seeing it, if they don't know verbally what level two means, if they've never taken your class before, they can't physically create, uh, recreate what that level looks like if they can't see it. Mm. So it's funny because the beginner uh, practitioner mistakes are actually very connected to the beginner teacher mistakes because we're, we're all learning at a new point in our journey. Um, and so the biggest thing that I found is in order to prevent some of those beginner mistakes, I actually had to change how I taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that, I learned a lot about myself that like, oh, yeah, I've been doing level three. I didn't really feel good. I don't know why I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it opened up the door for me to say for myself, oh, yeah, okay, I I think I'm going to stick with something else. And of course, still give people options to challenge themselves. But I know for me, this is what I need today in my practice. And that mm-hmm. you know, can change and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is going back to like the guys in yoga, I think a lot of people assume yoga is easy. And so beginners come in and they're like, oh, yeah, we're just going to take a nap for 30 minutes. That's cool. I'm going to feel refreshed. And then they leave a practice and they're sweaty and tired and even out of breath. Because another thing is people think yoga is not cardio, but there's absolutely cardio involved. And they're just like blown away. So I think, you know, beginners need to have an open mind, try a lot of different kinds of yoga, be willing to challenge yourself physically, or maybe you take a yin class and it's not as quick of movement, but you're challenging yourself mentally because you're staying still in the moment. Mm-hmm. Just be open to the different challenges that each class presents and you'll find your, your niche and your groove. Um, and you might find that something you really expected you wouldn't like ends up being exactly what you needed. Um, mm-hmm. I've had that because I, like I said, I like that that pumping like fast pace. So I, I tend to lean towards vinyasa, um, ashtanga. Ashtanga is a little hard for me, but you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> I still try it out for occasionally when I'm feeling good. But I I really didn't like restorative or yin yoga. And then I started doing it and I was like, this is what I've been needing my whole life. <laughs> Why have I been avoiding this? Because I put myself into a box thinking mm-hmm. what I would like and turned out it was actually what I needed. And I felt a lot better after trying some of the different options. Have you had a, have you ever had a really bad injury or like seen somebody else, like maybe one of your students or maybe somebody else that was in the same yoga program as you, maybe they had a really bad one. You know, I've been really lucky. I have not ever had an injury from yoga. Of course I've had other injuries like one time I had a pretty bad car accident. So obviously that impacted my ability to practice for quite some time. Um, but I've never had an injury that was because of yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also really tried to take care of myself and know, know my limits and yes, challenge myself, push myself to that edge. But um, I've been really lucky. Thankfully, I have never had a student in my class have an injury. (laughs) I mean, there's the kind of injuries where uh, sometimes people, they might be trying a headstand and they're not quite ready and then they fall over. 
And I mean, that could result in, in a, a bigger long-term injury. Um, but thankfully, no one has ever had that. Hopefully, no one has ever had that in my uh, video classes either, but <laughs> that I wouldn't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that being said, I mean, I've heard other people talk about injuries. Um, I think it it really comes back to the the brand of yoga that you're doing. And if you are using that for a workout, which is, again, nothing wrong with that, but if you're using it just for the purpose of a workout, you might push yourself beyond your limits, which would then push you into injury territory. So if you are practicing a more physical brand of yoga, um, but with the intention of still coming out the other side and, and getting that you know, next level of enlightenment, if you will. Um, I don't think you're going to, you're probably not going to have injury because you won't quite push yourself beyond your edge. Um, And that's, I think, a really good message for beginners too. You know, if you aren't ready for something and you're not listening to your body, maybe you haven't practiced, this is your first time listening to your body and you go beyond that edge, you could end up having a, a negative experience. And you you don't want that. Nobody wants that. Not only the pain and the recovery, right? But also then it's probably going to discourage you from doing yoga in the future, which everyone, every yogi out there is going to, you know, not want that to happen. They want people to practice. Hmm. Uh, Speaking of discouragement. So like when I first tried yoga, I think I went a little bit too hard my first couple of sessions. I think I tried to do like 30 minutes back to back, like Monday, Tuesday, everything. Um, so I think eventually kind of it felt bad. And so I stopped. So what, what's like a good um, maybe like a pace to go at when you're first starting out? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, this was a question that I got early in my teaching career. And um, she said, you know, you're so flexible. How do you get there? And how many times do I have to practice in order to get there? And at the time, honestly, I was only teaching two or three times a week. And the other days of the week, I was still active, but I was doing other types of workouts, whether it was, um, you know, weightlifting or I actually taught spinning at the time. So my other days were taken up with other types of activity. And I told her, well, start with two or three days and maybe don't do Monday through Wednesday, (laughs) maybe do Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something like that. Give yourself a, a break and an opportunity to kind of recover in between. But the other thing that I told her is, you cannot compare yourself to me. When I was in high school, I could not touch my toes to save my life. Like I could barely touch my the middle of my shin. And then when I started practicing, obviously I got a lot more flexibility, but I have had years under my belt. You have had maybe weeks. So the key is consistency. If you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you burn out, you're never going to have those same results because you weren't consistent. So yes, while now I practice yoga more often, I don't practice with the same amount of intensity. um, And I practice with the intention of trying to be consistent every week. So that's, I think the biggest thing is, you know, take it easy. You said you were doing 30 minutes. I mean, like, that's perfect. I probably wouldn't do a whole lot more than that. And unless someone is has already been super physically active their whole life and they want to do a little bit more, but start with two days a week. That's perfect. You will see results in two days a week. And then at that point you can decide I want 
more results. So I'm going to practice more, but you've already created the stamina or this is good for me. This, is, this helps me be functional in my life. I don't need to do more than two days a week. And how about like equipment? So I just had a yoga mat. Is that pretty much all you need or should I get other stuff? So the kind of yoga mat is probably the most important. And obviously I've tried several different over the years. Um, there is an old school brand that I like, the Gaim brand. Um, and it's a very, very thin mat. And it's at first a tiny bit slippery. So what I tell people is if you're finding that it's slippery, literally take some sandpaper and sand lightly rough up where your hands go and where your feet go. And that will make a huge help. Um, I have tried some other ones. There was a rubber mat that I really loved, but then it actually ended up deteriorating. And so every time I would practice yoga, it would be covered in this like little blue rubbery ball things. Like it was terrible. So I ended up throwing that one away. <laughs> um, but I think it also depends what kind of practice you find that you're into. If you find that you really like um, yin, you're going to want a much thicker mat because you need some cushion under your joints when you're holding those poses for a long time. If you want a more aggressive practice, like a, a flow practice, or a shtanga or something like that, you're going to want a thinner mat because you don't want something thick getting in the way of you being able to jump back and forth on your mat. Um, so that being said, mat is the most important thing. Try a couple different ones. You'll quickly find what you like and what you don't like. Um, a lot of people use blocks and straps. I don't. I think it's a great tool. If you want those, grab them. Um, you don't have to buy them. Use, you know, a can of soup for your lock. Use a tie or a belt for your strap. I really, I want people to feel like they can do yoga at any time with anything that's around them rather than kind of getting analysis paralysis. Well, I don't have the appropriate tools. No, you do. You have a flat surface and you have your body. That's all you need. You don't even really need a mat. <laughs> yeah. um, so like I, I'm a very big proponent. I will never push uh, equipment or things like that because you can absolutely do this practice and have all of the benefits without investing a lot of time and money in things. That being said, the older I get, the more sensitive my knees are. So I do have a very, very thick pad that's about, I don't know, the width of my mat and maybe a foot and I will use that anytime I'm doing a pose that requires me to put most of my weight on my knees. And that has been a game changer for me. So mm -hmm. when I travel, I have a travel mat that's very thin and I, it folds up into like, I don't know, four inches by eight inches. And so I can take it anywhere. But this mm -hmm. fluffy piece or squishy piece of uh, mat I bring with mm -hmm. me everywhere because I just, my, my knees can't handle it anymore and it's not worth it. I, why would I do it and be in pain? Yeah. <laughs> so that's not the point. Mm -hmm. so that, that's the only extra thing that I use. But, you know, really, whatever works for you. If, if you if you have very limited range of motion in your shoulders and you want to use a strap and you want to spend money on one, mm -hmm. go for it. 
but mm-hmm. I don't ever feel like you have to have these things in order to be successful. Uh, how about apps? Apps are really big these days. Do you do any uh, yoga apps? I don't. So my personal philosophy is that yoga should be available to everyone. That means everyone of any different body shape and size, everyone of any different financial level, financial situation. Um, and probably one of my, my biggest problems with yoga as an industry is, you know, if you do go explore some of the different yoga studios in your neighborhood, you're going to find that their monthly fees are pretty expensive. Uh, so for somebody who is, let's say, in college, and you don't really have a steady income, but you want to practice, practicing at a studio may not be economically feasible for you. And I don't think that's fair. Why should you not have access to the um, opportunity to feel physically better and mentally better if, 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 if it's outside of your uh, monetary range? And so I will only post my videos on platforms that are available for free. So like YouTube, or I've gone live before on Instagram, things like that. Um, A lot of people do apps and that's great. But what I have found is most teachers seem to start out on something like YouTube. And then, and let's be clear, we as teachers, we don't make any money on YouTube. Okay. We don't, we're doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. (laughs) So, and a lot of people will say, well, if you want to do something good, you have to find a way to be monetized for it. Otherwise you won't continue doing that good. And I understand that and a lot of teachers kind of take that approach. Okay, I started on YouTube. I will still put tidbits on YouTube or tidbits on the other social media platforms. But now I'm going to take my full length classes and I'm going to post them on my app. And then you can pay for access to the app. And if that is what their goals are for their teaching journey, you know, good for them. And I totally see why they do it. But that is not my goal. My goal is to make it accessible to everyone, regardless of your status in life. And that, and for me personally, your financial status is something that is probably overlooked the most. We talk, we talk about, you know, body positivity and, and things like that, but we really don't touch on the financial aspect of it as much. And so, so me personally, I don't use them because there's an, an amazing amount of material already available for free on uh, YouTube, or there's another platform that I know some of their stuff is paid now, but it's called Yoga With Me. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of free options too. And I think, you know, if, especially if you're starting out, if you don't have as uh, regular of a practice, don't spend a lot of money, go exhaust all the free options and see what you like. And then you can invest more money if, if you think there's a particular niche that you want to focus on. Yeah, I think that was like another mistake that I made early on was I downloaded, I think it was called Down Dog, and I just paid for like the, you know, the full subscription and everything. And then, you know, four days later, I was like, I don't know if I want to continue this yoga thing. And then I realized I had already paid 80 bucks, you know, or whatever, how much ever it was. So, yeah, I agree with you. We should definitely check out the free stuff first. Yeah. And you know what? Most of the yoga studios in your area will probably offer at least one free class, if not like maybe a free week. 
So, and that gives you the perfect opportunity to kind of bounce around and try some different options for free before you commit to something. Do you have any opinions of, as far as like uh, maybe three or five like top yoga positions that everybody should be doing, like the ones that maybe are like the most beneficial? Yeah, so that's a little bit hard to answer because everybody, everyone's body is different. So what they mm. need, need might be different, but yeah. I will just share my personal experience. Um, last year, I went on a trip and I was like, okay, we're going to be doing a lot of walking, but I want a little bit of exercise, something very small, very quick that will be strength oriented to help balance out the walking. Um, and if you do a lot of walking, or at least when I do a lot of walking, things start to hurt my back, you know? <laughs> so I said, okay, you know what I can do? I can do five sun A's. So a sun salutation for people who don't know is basically, I'm going to simplify it, is basically starting standing upright, touching your toes, stepping back and doing a push-up, moving to down dog stepping forward, standing back up to upright. So very, uh, there's of course some nuances to that, but those of you who are familiar with yoga will know what a sun A is. Um, so I said, I, I can do five sun A's. That's fine. So I did it the first day and I timed myself and it was like, I don't know, four and a half minutes. Perfect. This is exactly what I need. And so ever since then, this has been about, Almost exactly a year ago, I have done it, not a hundred percent of every morning, but pretty darn close. And it feels amazing. When you wake up first thing in the morning and you're all stiff and you work through some of those poses, you go from feeling stiff and like a granny shuffling around to like fluid. And then you add the breathing on top of that and it's really calming and it helps me mentally start my day. But the biggest thing that I noticed, I really struggle with uh, upper body strength. So some of the poses in yoga, like, for example, any kind of a arm balance, man, I am terrible at those. So five push-ups a day. Everybody out there who's a weightlifter is like, that's nothing. You're never going to build strength that way. Uh, let me tell you, my upper body strength from doing five sun A's a day about four and a half minutes every morning has skyrocketed. And so I think that that is a great example of something that some, a very beginner person could do. And they would not only feel really good after it and mentally be prepared for the day, but I think they can easily find um, a big increase in strength as well. So that would probably be my go-to as far as a pose that everyone should, or, or a uh, flow that everyone should, should try. But again, keep in mind, it's all going to depend on your body and what you need. Some people are going to be really good at the strong poses and some people are going to be really good on the flexible poses. Mm -hmm. And if you're really good at the strong poses, you should probably practice the flexibility poses and vice versa. That's mm -hmm. how you'll keep the, the most balance. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like there's a lot of spillover in terms of benefits to other areas of life uh, through yoga. Oh yeah. Big time. Um, when I first started, so that class with the football players, that was 
it may not have been the exact same week, but definitely the same month that I started a new job. And the new job was very stressful, huge learning curve. I was very overwhelmed. And if I had not been teaching yoga at the same time, I would have 100% quit that job. There's no way that I had the mental stamina and the emotional balance to be able to handle that kind of stress in my life without some kind of an outlet. And keep in mind, I had done other classes, you know, whether it be like a, a plyometric class or a spin class, I had done all kinds of spinning. I had done all those other classes leading up until that point. And for me, yes, those were all good workouts, but they were no longer or really never had been a good outlet of stress relief. And so when I started doing yoga, I mean, I was able to handle the amount of stress in my life way better. There's kind of a joke about, (laughs) so, oh, well, people who practice yoga are so calm and peaceful. (laughs) No, okay. We're all fucking nuts (laughs) and we practice this so that we kind of come back into the normal range. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We are not like calm, peaceful individuals. Yes. We're, we're shooting for that in our lives, but usually our lives are hectic and we feel really off balance or stressed. And so practicing yoga helps us find a little bit of balance and peace Mm -hmm in that hectic life. It's, mm-hmm. it's not that peaceful. Most, most peaceful people don't practice yoga because they don't mm-hmm. need an outlet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that's why yoga got created in India. Like, you know, India is a pretty crazy place. And maybe people are like, we need to find something to calm everybody down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you look at the history of yoga and going back to some of the roots in India, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the whole reason that there's hot yoga is because it's hot in India. Um, if you read through Bikram's uh, biography, which I want to state, there's some controversy around him. So please like take it with a grain of salt. But if you look at his biography, he actually wanted to find a way to help medically treat the masses And so people would come and they would have a certain ailment. So he would give them a specific pose. And so his sequence he came up with so that he could give that same sequence to many different people. And then they would all get the same medical benefits. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. If you look at the culture of India and how I've never been, it's a dream of mine to go there. So I I can't speak from personal experience, but from what I've heard, from what I've read, you know, um, if you, if you read about the culture, it really comes through in yoga and some of the different practices. And then that's why I really like the idea of branding yoga, because some of these brands, you can start to see the U S influence or, or the West influence in you can see how it's kind of been bastardized a little bit. And that is something that I don't think it's bad because, you know, evolution and technology and moving forward progress, those are all really good things. But I think we can't have any of those things right without knowing history. We all have to learn about history. We all understand that history is important so that we don't repeat the bad things, right? But it's also important that we learn about the origins of the good things and help, you know, help um, preserve some of that 
that positivity. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that came out of India is meditation. Uh, is meditation something that you also practice? It is. I don't practice it with as much regularity as I would like. Um, it's actually something that I struggle with. Partly because of time. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when I talked about my morning practice, that's five minutes. There is no part of my rational brain that can justify skipping it. It's mm-hmm. five minutes. Whereas meditation, usually 10, 20 or more. My brain, I struggle with rationalizing taking that amount of time. Now, the points in my life where I have been really consistent with meditation, I think it's fantastic. I have absolutely experienced benefits from it, um, reduction in anxiety. I have horrible insomnia. When I meditate before I go to sleep, I sleep so much better. Um, so I, it's something that I should absolutely do, but I struggle with it. it is, it's been a, a piece of the practice that I have not been very consistent. That being said, when I teach... I always try to incorporate a really, really quick meditation piece. Um, And I, going back to getting feedback from students, that's one of the things that they've often given feedback on, that they were surprised at how I taught meditation. Um, I think a lot of people, probably we've evolved more now, but when I first started doing meditation, the idea was that, oh, you just sit in one place and breathe. And really, that's it. Well, if it's your first time and you don't have any tools to be able to meditate, you won't do it because sitting for 20 minutes in one place, it becomes uncomfortable and you will get distracted. You will feel bad about getting distracted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what I started doing is the way that I teach my class is the first half is what I call your warm up. And it's the flow part of class, the physical part of class. And then the second half, we slow things down and we do a little bit more yin style um, practice, a lot more flexibility, maybe some balance. So Mm. the balance aspect is where I usually try to throw in the meditation. And I will pick a easy, it's not easy, it's just accessible balance pose um, that everyone can do and give modifications so that even the people who struggle with balance can do it. So usually I like to do it with tree pose, um, which if you're familiar with tree pose, there are a million different kinds of variations. But what I tell people is, okay, this is your opportunity to have just a glimpse into a meditative practice. So what I want you to do is find a version of this pose that you can hold perfectly still. So if that means you have to touch a wall, fine. If that means you need to actually keep the, um, the leg that normally comes off the ground, if you need to keep that big toe on the ground, totally fine. Now, stay still. The only thing that you are focusing on is, of course, breathing and not moving. And as soon as you try to not move, you're avoiding, you know, maybe there's an itch. Maybe there's like a draft that's blowing a piece of hair in your face. Maybe, maybe you're just really wobbly and you're trying to stay still. As soon as you focus on that stillness, all of a sudden, all the noise in the background gets quieted. Um, and so that's how I like to incorporate meditation. It's, I don't know, two minutes, three minutes, maybe four minutes if I'm feeling really evil and making them <laughs> balance for a long time. Um, but it is really functional 
for someone who doesn't have a lot of experience in meditation. So even in my home life, when I'm meditating at home, I still, I don't like sitting in one place. And that's probably why I don't have a very consistent practice because I don't like sitting in one place for for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. But if I can go stand in a room in tree pose or um, another active pose and just hold it for two minutes and focus on complete stillness, I find I get a lot of the same benefits from meditation, just doing what I call an active meditation. And nowadays people do walking meditation. So adding some kind of movement uh, to your meditation is becoming more popular. And I think it's making meditation more accessible to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't that way when I first started. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) we talk about journeys. That's been a real journey. (laughs) Um, so combining meditation and yoga and all this, uh, so it seems like it kind of helps with an individual's personal development. Um, would you agree with that? Would you say that all these things are kind of important if you're somebody that's focusing on developing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. It helps you have mental clarity. It helps you have more focus. Um, so when it comes to personal development, I, I mean, I think everyone is interested in developing different pieces of themselves. And so if you are practicing yoga or meditation and you're finding that clarity of where do I want to focus? What, what is important to me? Um, And then you can kind of hone in on whatever tools help you focus in that area. Um, And then just the actual focus, right? Like, man, we live in such a, a crazy hectic world. So to be able to sit quietly and really um, process information on whatever it is that you're wanting to develop, that can be challenging for some of us. Either there's distractions externally, or maybe you're just not very good at sitting there and, and learning. So that distraction internally. And so practicing yoga and meditation helps eliminate distractions or helps really reduce your reaction to the distractions and Mm. and the less of a reaction less distraction you have the more you can focus on whatever it is that you're Mm. wanting to work towards Mm. do you have any tips for somebody that maybe they're sort of interested in personal development but maybe they're like maybe a little bit of a couch potato they don't have that motivation like what would you maybe say to somebody like that yeah you know Honestly, I have been struggling with that myself. I, you know, when I was in my 20s and before the pandemic, I was very uh, much a go-getter and would spend a lot of time on personal development. And lately I've been like, like you're saying just no motivation. Not, I mean, I'll always be physical, so I wouldn't really call myself a couch potato, but um, trying to find the groove of what I'm interested in and what I want to focus on has been a challenge. So, you know, it's hard for me to answer that question because I feel like maybe I'm not uh, in the best place to answer it. But the things that I'm doing for myself um, are really just the simple act of acting rather than sitting on the couch and wondering, what am I interested in? What do I want to focus on? How do I want to create? I just get myself up and go do something. And 
it is, <laughs> it is not as easy as it sounds. There's a whole internal monologue about, well, should I, I could skip it today. It's not a big deal, you know? Um, but ultimately what I've been trying to focus on is as soon as you have any kind of interest in anything, go do it. Whether it's okay, I should get a workout in today. Okay. Get up, go do it. If that, if, if the difference between getting that workout in and not getting it in is putting on running shoes or putting on your workout clothes, I can't tell you how many times over <laughs> the last, I don't know, several months I have gone and worked out. I'm, I'm blessed enough to have a, a workout space, but I, I go in there in my pajamas. Uh, I do something right. Because as soon as I get over that first five minute hump of doing it, I'm like, well, oh, this is not really the best scenario for what I'm wearing, but it's fine. At least now I'm getting, you know, my heart rate up or whatever. I will yeah. say that's one of the huge benefits of practicing at home, having a, a, a practice at home rather than relying on a studio. Mm-hmm. Yoga is the best with whatever clothes you have on. I mean, maybe you're, if you're like in a professional setting, you wear a suit and tie, maybe that's not going to work for you. But if you're at home, you can wear workout clothes. You could have fancy matching outfits or you can do yoga in your pajamas and it's totally fine. And I think that has helped me a lot because there's no expectation. I can just go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I've been trying to apply that practice in more areas of my life. If there is something like, I, I hate making doctor's appointments. Oh, I hate it. It's probably one of my, the things I despise the most. Just go do it. Make a phone call. You know, make one phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the types of things that I'm trying to just act upon and mm-hmm. then trust that once I act, I'll get the momentum that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about the couch earlier. Are there yoga poses that like, I guess one could do like while they're just like, laying on the couch or maybe laying in bed? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so there's all kinds of seated poses, um, like lotus, half lotus. You can add twists from there. You can. I showed this with the strap, but you can do shoulder stretches with one hand behind your back. Um, absolutely. And do I do yoga poses while I sit and watch TV? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, you, you totally can. Uh, in the winter time, so we are starting to get a little bit colder weather and getting some rain. And so one of my favorite things to do is to have a fire. Our fireplace is phenomenal. It, it actually does heat the whole house. So I will have a fire. I will move all the furniture out of the way and bring my yoga mat and like just do some really calming um you know, flexibility focused poses there in front of the fire. And it's very relaxing, very, uh, again, just that, that acting without really like, I don't have to set the stage or anything. I just, just put on the fire. I'm already in the room that I like to be in, in the winter time. And then you don't even have to bring your mat down if you don't want to, but I I spend a lot of time like that. Hmm. So no excuses, guys. You can do yoga on the couch. <laughs> yep. No excuses for sure. <laughs> um, earlier, you mentioned that you had always wanted to go to India. So um, I know you've traveled a lot. Um, are you, do you have any like favorite uh, travel destinations? 
Yeah. So uh, being based in California, we you know had to learn Spanish in high school. We didn't have to, but most of us did. Uh, so I just ironically, maybe it's because I feel more comfortable, but I love a lot of the Spanish speaking countries. Um, I have been to Spain multiple times and mm. I love Spain. Uh, we went to Argentina a couple of years ago and that was a fantastic trip as well. Uh, I really, honestly, if you had to choose between Spain and Argentina, I would probably pick Argentina um, just because it's a little bit more of an adventure. But yeah, I, I love traveling. So my, my 40th birthday will be coming up in a couple of years. And I'm actually hoping to go to India for my 40th birthday. So we'll see how that works out. Um, but we also have a big trip planned. And I use the term planned loosely. I, this is a, a dream. And we're trying to make it a reality. But it's, it's a pretty far-reaching dream. We're hoping to take a motorcycle trip all the way through Central and South America. And my goal is to film yoga every day in a different place. Um, and I mean, it's a, a really lofty and intimidating goal, but um, I think I think it's possible. So we're excited because it'll not only integrate the travel aspect, we love going, seeing new places, meeting new people, learning about new cultures, um, but then also to be able to find hopefully a, just a quiet, tiny piece of the corner of that location to be able to film in, I think would be, um, I think it would make for an amazing series, obviously, online, but I also think it would be just um a really good way to balance constant traveling with uh, a little bit more exercise and mental balance and stability. Um, you mentioned that Argentina was more adventurous. What made it more adventurous? Well, it's obviously not as established as Spain. I mean, Spain has being part of Europe it has a huge history. One of the things that I didn't really know about Argentina is their history really, it, it doesn't go back much farther than like the 1800s. Obviously, there's indigenous people and that goes back farther. But the, the, the history of the cities that you see now, they look old, but they were actually built kind of as an homage to Europe. So even though they look old because of that architecture, they were actually not built that long ago. I mean, they're, they are a newer uh, country than the U.S., right? Like our history isn't, we don't even have that long of a history. Um, so it was fun to travel around and see like I, that, that kind of history. And it's definitely, uh, so Spain is not exactly, you know, the, the cream of the crop, economically speaking, but Argentina does have a little bit more color with their, um, we'll say, economic and political policies. There's a lot more nuance to it than that. So uh, obviously, I always recommend doing more research. Mm -hmm. But that was interesting to hear people that live there and hear their stories. You compare that then to what you hear in the news, especially if you're traveling there, then you'll pay a little bit more attention. Um, their economy is pretty volatile. So 
we were there at a time where the um, exchange rate was phenomenal in our favor. So it was incredibly cheap to be there, but with like the quality of uh, food and drink that I don't know, honestly, surpasses the US. Like if you like beef, that is the place to go. Everything is just off the charts, amazing. Like everything's grass fed. All the stuff that we look for in stores, oh, organic, grass fed, free range, blah, blah, blah. Like Mm -hmm. that's just how they do it. (laughs) That is the only option there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was, I guess a little bit more of an adventure. It's bigger. So it's a little harder to navigate, which mm-hmm. depending on your style of traveling, you may not like, we enjoy that. Oh, there's an obstacle that we have to figure out. Okay. Let's figure it out. And maybe the process of figuring it out isn't so much fun, but the end result, when you get to come home and tell your friends, Oh yeah. Uh, we figured that out like a really funny story. So <laughs> the taxi cabs there, like the mafia and there's Uber, but there's all these rules about how you can and can't take Uber so that you don't get targeted by the mafia. <laughs> oh, wow. So, I mean, we followed all the rules. It was fine. We had no problems, but we get to come back and share these stories about like, oh yeah, you know, the taxi drivers are giving the stink eye because they're the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I would probably want to encourage people to go there because I think there's a little bit, uh, since it's newer and it doesn't have as much history, it's a little in, more unstable. You're probably going to have more interesting stories. Mm-hmm. But also because of all those factors, I, I would encourage people to spend their money there and mm-hmm. you know support support the, the local people there. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for travelers? Yeah, I mean... Go with the flow, be open-minded. It, it will not turn out how you think it's going to turn out. <laughs> uh, granted, I have never traveled. Well, that's not true. I think one time I've traveled with a tour group once. So every other trip has, we have planned, we have chosen our day-to-day activities. Um, we have chosen how we're going to get there, where we're going to stay, all of that stuff. And yeah, it doesn't go to plan and it can be really stressful and you just have to like, let it go and and be prepared for that. And when it happens, find the humor in it rather than the stress, which obviously is easier said than done. But um, yeah, when we travel, we, for international travel like that, for a big, we spent about three weeks in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Um, So we prefer to backpack. It makes it really easy. If you are having any kind of misconnections or anything, it's so much easier to run around and get where you need to go. Um, It's so much, you feel safer because you know you have all of your important things there with you. You don't have to worry so much about like, oh, is somebody pickpocketing my bag in the train because it's in the luggage area, you know? Mm. So that's a big thing. Definitely stay somewhere where there is a sense of community. When I was younger, I stayed in hostels. I mean, even up until we were 30. I think a lot of people associate hostels with like being, I don't know, 18 or in college. But they have hostels where you can stay up until 30, 35, 40. Um, And even if you're not staying in a hostel, staying in some kind of an area that has that community, because then you can meet other people 
you can find out, oh, well, we did this tour yesterday and it was phenomenal. And so then you get excited about doing something that maybe you hadn't heard about. Um, or when we travel together, we always try to take usually like every fifth day off from each other. So if you have a travel companion and you are seeing nothing but that other person's face, you are going to start hating that other person's <laughs> face. So if you stay somewhere with community, you can go explore other things when the person that you're traveling with maybe doesn't want to do that. Um, or maybe you realize you're getting on each other's nerves and you need a break. Uh, and I think so many people, they you know want to stay in a resort. They want to stay in a, a fancy hotel and, and maybe they interact with the concierge and that's great. But it's so much more fun when you get to interact with people from other countries, um, people who maybe have been there before and they have suggestions or maybe they have been to the place that's really high on your bucket list. And they get mm -hmm. you excited about going there. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, it's amazing the people that you can meet mm -hmm. when you're traveling and not only what they can teach you about, you know, maybe where you want to go in the future or something like that, or where you want to go in that mm -hmm. city, but they also are a really good mirror, especially being American. They are really good mirror of what we look like to the outside world. Mm. And while I may be more open to hearing feedback, other people from the U.S. might not. And those are the people that need to hear the feedback the most. Mm -hmm. so when Trump got elected, I we happened to be in Thailand and I was grilled by these people. <laughs> Why did you? Why did you elect him? I was like, whoa, <laughs> I'm not in charge of the country. <laughs> But, you know, hearing their perspective was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I was in Europe a couple of years after 9-11, hearing the feedback about, you know, U.S. relations with all different countries, not just Middle Eastern countries, but all countries after 9-11 was eye-opening. And mm -hmm. we have a tendency to think that we are the best of the best, and we are not. <laughs> there are so many other countries out there that are, better educated. Maybe it's a, a um, you know, a, a lower income country, but maybe they have more creative creativity in how they solve problems because of their lack of resources or lack of access. Mm -hmm. And I just think being exposed to these other people, you then mm -hmm. get to learn like either how blessed you are living here um, or how ignorant you are because really our education just is not on par with some of these other countries. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a, a good sounding board to be exposed mm -hmm. to different people. And, and you don't have to leave with a, you know, you don't have to leave that experience with a different opinion, mm -hmm. but isn't it good to have that discourse and, you know, have different, be exposed to different uh, perspectives. It's people talk about being exposed to different cultures, but it's not just that. It's also, you know, their reflection of us and vice versa. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said. I think traveling is so important. Um, I don't think I've done it as much as you have, but um, I have traveled a little bit. Um, and you just learn so much about yourself. And um, going back to like personal development, it develops you because you realize, you know, what you don't know and things that you still need to learn. 
um, yeah. not just about yourself, but also just the world. Um, and like you were saying, you do get a perspective from other countries about uh, what, you know, how we're perceived and things like that, or maybe in areas where the United States is lacking. Like, for example, you mentioned education. Like, um, I have, uh, you know, distant relatives that come from India sometimes, or they moved here from India, and they always talk about how, um, you know, our K through 12 schooling is uh, not up to par, you know, and yeah. how they're doing, they were doing like calculus in like high school. And here, you don't usually take calculus until you're a freshman or sophomore in college, you know. Yeah. Um, so you just get this other uh, perspective on life and stuff. Have you had the opportunity to go to India? Yeah. So I've been to India three times. Last time I went was 2011. So it's been a while. Uh, lots changed since then. I hear a lot of stories. Um, it's definitely on my list as well to go back there. Yeah. Yeah. So any uh, suggestions for me when I'm planning our trip? <laughs> um, so every time I've gone, I was um, young. So I kind of stayed mostly with family. And so we mostly stayed in the Punjab region, um, which is like kind of where we're all kind of from and stuff. Um, so I guess as far as my recommendations, they'll kind of be a little biased. Um, so obviously, like I would recommend uh, me being a Sikh, uh, I would recommend seeing the Golden Temple. That's kind of like a you have to do it kind of thing. Um, I would definitely try to go in a group. Um, unfortunately, there's some shady characters in India, um, maybe, you know, just like any other place in the world. So I would definitely not go by yourself. Try the food. The food's amazing, especially the street food. Uh, it doesn't get any better than the street food. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, that's uh, one thing. Oh, we sorry, have kind of a, a joke that because I said I wanted to go to India. And so my significant other was like, oh, so you want to have diarrhea for three weeks? So I was like, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we talked to a guy when we were in Thailand. We said, did you eat the street food? And he said, yes. He was like, I was so sick for a few days and it was so worth it. I would do it again. <laughs> so I was like, I think I think we can go that route. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not scared. <laughs> Yeah, the diarrhea is something that you might have to deal with. So every time I've gone, uh, first week can be a little brutal sometimes because your body's not used to their diet. Um, But once you get over it, it's fine. Um, Yeah, and that's one thing that my wife and I, we always kind of talk about is lacking here in the United States is, uh, and we even saw it in Italy, there's a lot of street vendors. And here in the United States, you know, there isn't that culture of just walking outside and just seeing like, you know, 50 street vendors to kind of chit chat with and, you know, get, uh, get to know and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. When we were in Thailand, it was actually like cheaper and made better sense with our uh, day-to-day schedule to eat street food. It didn't, other places will try to go grocery shopping and save a little bit of money. It did not make sense to try to go grocery shopping. In fact, you couldn't even find a grocery store some of the places. Yeah, I agree. I mean, street food is is something we really enjoy and we are very much lacking. We have food trucks, but it's not remotely the same thing. Yeah, there's just more of a culture. There's not as many vehicles, you know, and stuff like that in these other countries. And so there's more of a walking, getting to know your neighbor yeah. kind of culture out there. Yeah, for which sure. Is, I think something something we could implement in the United States for sure. Yeah. And I I love walking around a new city. I think there is no better way to see a city than to walk or use their public transportation. As soon as you start driving, you're paying attention to other vehicles on the road, signs, whatever. 
and you're not paying attention to life around you. And so that's a, a we have never rented a car the entire time we've traveled. Uh, and luckily, we've been in areas where there was good uh, public transportation. But man, you can see so much more when you just slow down and walk around or, or you know, if that city is a good biking city, that's another good option. But renting a car, I just, I don't know. We've, I, I know that's kind of the norm and how most people travel. And I just, I don't like it because I feel like you miss out and it's an unnecessary expense. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Um, we've been talking about food a lot, and I know uh, you either recently picked it up or you, maybe you've always been into it. Um, I've noticed you've been posting a lot uh, about food and, you know, making these uh, master chef style dishes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, have you always liked cooking like or did you just recently get into it? Um, you know, I don't know if I've always liked it. I've always made an effort at special times of the year to make something very special. Um, I, when I grew up, my family made the same dishes all the time. You know, like, for example, we have Thanksgiving is next week. We had the exact thing, same Thanksgiving meal from the time that I can remember. So like six until I, you know, graduated high school. And while that was fine for my family, that was not what I wanted. So I always wanted to make something different. So like now, every Thanksgiving, we always make something different. I, yes, we always have macaroni and cheese, but it's never the same recipe of macaroni and cheese. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always kind of enjoyed it, but I, I didn't really have time to cook uh, before we moved. So before we moved, I was teaching classes. I was teaching classes uh, basically four nights a week and on Saturdays. So I, I didn't have time to cook at that point in my life. And so then when we moved, that was a huge thing that I wanted to shift gears and spend more time doing. Mm-hmm. And um, I did it a little bit. And then we did um, the Whole30 diet, which if you're familiar, it's not really a diet. It's the whole point is to uh, find what you are sensitive to, what your food sensitivities are. Because mm. again, like I was raised, if I'm eating the same Thanksgiving dinner every single year, I don't know if there is something in that dinner that makes my stomach upset or makes me feel lethargic because that's the only thing I've been exposed to. So the whole point of Whole30 is to get in touch with your body and see what foods make you feel good and what foods make you feel not so good. Mm. Well, because it's an elimination-based diet, you have to eliminate all of the yummy things, which means you have to start incorporating spices. And I realized that like, oh, wow. So like for the last 10 years, I have been seasoning my food with salt and cheese. That's kind of boring. <laughs> so I started cooking with all these different spices. And I was like, there's this whole world out there that I have not explored. And I mean, yes, I like to go out and eat all these ethnic types of foods, but I didn't really practice cooking them at home very much. Um, I mean, again, being from California, yeah, I can make Mexican food like crazy, but that's pretty much it, right? So exploring some of these different um, ethnic foods at home really started to uh, broaden my culinary abilities, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So now I really like to cook. And we, I mean, we still probably don't cook 
as much as I would like because of our, our scheduling. Cause I do think, you know, mealtime is a really important time in the family, whatever your family unit looks like, it's still the opportunity to sit down and have conversation over hopefully a delicious meal. So when your schedules kind of conflict, it, it can make it hard. It's very hard to cook for one person. There's, it's, there's not a lot of motivation to do that. <laughs> so I still don't cook probably as much as I would like, but um, I do find it very therapeutic to be in the kitchen. Um, you know, we've talked so much about like breathing techniques and some of these other pieces of yoga. And while I wouldn't say bring yoga to the kitchen, I do find like the act of chopping, for example, it's repetitive. It is, you have to stay focused or you will cut a finger off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't know, I find that super therapeutic. Maybe it's the focus, maybe (laughs) it's the violence of whacking a vegetable to death. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But it that whole process feels really really good and then when you sit down and you get to you know enjoy the fruits of your labor and and be like wow I'm dang I've created something pretty darn good here Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're eating good tonight uh I think that feels good so you have you have in a short period of time both the you enjoy the process and you get that gratification the you know enjoying your success Whereas so many things in life, you know, we, we can't enjoy the success that quickly. You can't for yoga. I mean, you can do yoga for one hour and you will probably feel good after that hour, but you won't go from like my example, touching my shins to touching my toes in one hour, Mm. but I can cook in one hour and sit down and eat and feel successful Mm. in doing that. So I, I like the kind of immediate results of cooking, even though maybe it might not necessarily always be the fastest meal, mm-hmm. the results are still pretty fast. Mm, I've thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any like favorite recipe of yours? Yeah. So I mentioned mac and cheese. I love mac and cheese. Um, we used to go to a Friendsgiving um, where we used to live. We still try to go occasionally. Uh, and I always brought mac and cheese. And every year it was a different kind. Uh, sometimes like I've made a bacon one with blue cheese. That was amazing. Uh, last year I made one with caramelized onions that it probably wasn't my favorite, but it was a really big hit with all of them. So I love mac and cheese. Um, my big claim to fame is eggplant parm. That is for me. So I talk about, you know, cooking being a process and sometimes it's a faster process than others. And sometimes you feel like you've put together a fancier meal. And for me, making a plant farm feels like a fancy meal because even though it's really easy to make, there's a lot of steps. So I feel like mm. I've accomplished a lot of steps by the time I finish. Mm. <laughs> um, that's I, I love a plant farm. My significant other is not a fan. I've probably made it a little <laughs> too much for him. <laughs> um, do you watch any cooking shows? You know, like I don't. I, it's something that I would love to watch more, but, uh, two things, we don't have cable, so mm. I don't just like throw on anything uh, on the TV in the background. Um, we're kind of weird about our, our viewing. We, if we're going to watch TV, we're going to sit down and like make it an event. I don't, mm. I don't leave the TV on like when I clean or when I'm cooking mm. or it's not on in the background. If I'm watching, it's because I want to watch something. Mm. So I don't. Um, 
we, he also is not really interested in cooking shows. So like I tried to one year around the holidays, we tried to watch the, uh, the great bake off. I forget the name Mm. of the show, but uh, he was so not having it. (laughs) (laughs) But what we do like is the uh, shows about street food because Mm. we love seeing the, not only the food, but also the culture. And then um, that show, what was it? Fat, acid, salt, heat. We loved that. It was a really quick show. And again, mm-hmm. all about the cultures. It's, yes, the food is there, but like you learn so much about the cultures of the people that are making these different kinds of foods. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't really watch like Top Chef or something. I don't watch that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I probably could learn a lot by doing it, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm a really big fan of Hell's Kitchen, so I guess I'm a little biased. I'm a Chef Ramsay fan, so yeah. I would recommend that one. Um, if you do start that one, I would recommend starting in season three. Season one and two aren't that good, but uh, okay. yeah, that, that's what I would recommend. Uh, would you ever want to like maybe go on a cooking show or maybe even go to like maybe culinary school first? No, I don't think so. I <laughs> I enjoy the act of cooking, but I do not have a time frame. So there have been times where you, we started, and I was like, this is going to be an easy meal, no problem. And then I'm looking at the watch, looking at the watch, and I'm like, okay, so we're going to eat at 930. I'm sorry, my bad. <laughs> so anything timed, I probably would not do well at. Because again, cooking for me is therapy. There's, I, I don't want it to be um, time sensitive and like have mm. that kind of aggressive piece of it. Um mm. But culinary school, I don't know if I would ever go to culinary school, but I have, this didn't used to be when I traveled. It wasn't something I was interested in. But lately, um, I have been trying to find cooking classes, the places that we travel and try to find an authentic uh, cooking class. And um, the last one we did was phenomenal. We were in Greece and I had already at home made moussaka again, an eggplant dish. So my... (laughs) significant other was like really eggplant again (laughs) but um so it was fun to see like what I had made at home with no knowledge of authentic Greek cooking and then making it with a Greek chef and seeing similarities and then of course the things that I could do differently in the future when I made it at home for myself Mm -hmm. again um Mm -hmm. but yeah that's that's something that I enjoy but I don't know I ever want to go to school like I still don't have proper I enjoy chopping, but I don't have proper chopping technique. I don't want to learn. (laughs) How about food? Do you like grow any of your own food or do you shop at all? Oh, yeah. So we last year, we did a huge renovation of our backyard. And um, so a big piece of that was making sure that we had space for a garden. And um, I will say I had some success this year, but I, I will be changing around some of where the plants are because some of the things did not do as well. Of course, uh, the summer wasn't as hot as other summers. So I think that had a little bit to do with it as well. But yeah, we usually grow tomatoes. I mean, gosh, homegrown tomatoes off the vine are like one of the most amazing things to eat. If you've never had one, store-bought tomatoes are a joke compared to what you can uh, taste when you grow them yourselves. Obviously, eggplant. I uh, that's why I cook so much eggplant because I grow one eggplant plant and that thing just oh my gosh, it it goes nuts. Uh, Squash, peppers, 
Um, you know, we just try to explore a little bit each year. We we're really lucky. Fresno State locally has a phenomenal agricultural program, and they have two plant sales, spring and fall. And in the spring, that's when they have all of their uh, plants for produce for the summer, um, a lot of herbs and stuff. And so I always try to go to that plant sale, and they have just amazing options, things that varieties of like, for example, tomatoes and peppers that you would never be able to find at Home Depot or even your local nursery. Um, Mm. They have, I think last time they had like 70 different kinds of tomatoes. So I always go with the intention of like, I'm going to buy four tomato plants and then I buy 12. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, growing your own food is, I mean, it's a lot of work and if somebody is going to set up a garden, I would highly recommend that they um, take a lot of time to set up their sprinkler system first and their drip line, because if you are out there trying to manage it manually, you will absolutely give up. It's it's too much work. But if you have all those systems in place, which getting them in place the first time is exhausting, but once you do it once and you're done. So we did, like I said, a ton of work last year and, um, this year was the first year that we kind of got to, well, literally the fruits of our labors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to make some adjustments next year and hopefully keep on going. Mm-hmm. So now I wanted to move over to animals. So I know your cats are very special to you um, and that you're very involved in animal care. Um, so one thing uh, I've found is that sometimes we don't always know all the resources that are available to us for those of us that maybe might be pet owners. So what are some local resources that you know of that maybe people should be aware of? Yeah. Yeah. My fur babies are actually part of my logo and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My old cat, unfortunately he passed away, but he used to come in when I was doing yoga all the time. Uh, And then my other cat uh, who is still alive, he was never interested, but then once the other one passed away, he's like, all of a sudden, what are you doing? So now winter time, it being cold, I bring his bed in and he comes and hangs out with me while I do yoga. Um, but yeah, so man, every, every city has a ton of resources. I mean, all the shelters, they, they're almost always full to the brim. Uh, and I think there's, a misconception about a kill shelter versus a non-kill shelter. Mm -hmm. Um, Shelters are not out here just like willy nilly killing off animals. That is never their goal. Their goal is always to reunite pets with owners first. If there is no owner, get them adopted out, get them in a foster home. um, And then the last resort is hopefully another no kill shelter will come and um, rescue them. So the the no kill rescues often go into kill rescues and pull animals. Um, And I think a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to support a kill shelter. And I'm using that term kind of aggressively on purpose. I mean, again, that is not their intention. It is never their intention to euthanize unless that animal is actually in pain um, and is not going to survive. So I would recommend always checking out your kill shelter first. 
they need the resources too. They are doing the work too. They are probably stretched thin the most and need the help the most. If you don't go there, the hope is that a no-kill rescue will pull from them. And then if you get from a from the rescue, then, I mean, you're still supporting, but I like to, with any problem, right, go to the most base source. And in this case, you know, most of your, your local, county, state, city, whatever, um, government-funded shelters are going to be the place that need your help the most and have the, the most um, or the fastest ticking time clock. And so helping them is, is really helping the, like the base of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of shelters, which shelters are not only are they a good place to get a pet, but they are a really good place to point you in other resources. So um, for dogs, obviously people are looking for a particular breed of dog. And so just Google that breed and rescue in your area. And even if it's not in your area where you can drive to them, there's usually plenty within the state or you can always get a, um, a dog, you know, delivered over state lines. They have, uh, what is it, pilots for paws. I actually had a friend who used to fly for them and he would fly rescues from state to state so that they could be adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, really cool program. Cats are hard because people... <laughs> People do not have the same care for cats and adopting cats as they do for dogs. If you are a dog person, you know what kind of dog you want. And you usually have a better path to getting that kind of dog. Most cat people didn't know they were cat people. They had a kitten show up in an inconvenient situation and they started feeding it and they were like, oh, I guess I'm a cat person now. <laughs> um, that's how we got our first cat. When we were growing up, there was this cat and she kept meowing really loud. And my mom was worried the cat was going to wake up my dad. So my mom accidentally, accidentally gave her some warmed up milk and the cat never left. <laughs> and my dad, who was like, I hate cats, loved that cat. So, you know, the cat chooses you. Um, But the biggest thing is you have to get your cat fixed, okay? Cats are like bunnies. If you don't get them fixed, they will make more cats. Um, Mm -hmm. And the resources to be able to get your cat fixed are somewhat more limited. Because shelters know that they can move dogs, they don't put as much money into resources for moving cats. Mm -hmm. So locally, there is a group called Fresno TNR um, that stands for Trap, Neuter, Return. And their sole focus, well, I shouldn't say sole, but one of their major focuses is on the feral or the community cat population. And so those are the cats that are not owned by anyone. So theoretically, there's no owner that's going in and, you know, getting them fixed, getting them their shots, et cetera, et cetera. So they work on trapping those cats and getting them fixed, which prevents more babies. But it also helps solidify the the colonies that are in a certain area and prevent those colonies from growing from outside sources. Mm -hmm. So a common misconception is that if you trap a cat and you relocate it like out into the country, which first of all is an asshole move, don't do that. 
A cat is just like you or I. If we got dropped off on a random highway road in the country, wouldn't we wouldn't know where we were. And we wouldn't necessarily know where the first source of water or the first source of food is. So it's pretty cruel to do that. Mm-hmm. However, let's say you did do that. That doesn't mean you no longer have a cat. That means you now have a void that is going to be filled by other cats that move into the void. So the only way to fix the problem is to get the original cat fixed. They stay, they fill the void. Um, They know where all their resources are. We first moved into this house and um, there was a cat here. And this is how how I got involved in all this. She had kittens (laughs) on our roof and it was very stressful. We, We got them all rescued. So the kittens are all happy, but it was really stressful. And I was like, I am never doing this again. How do I get this cat fixed and all the other cats fixed? And it's not as easy as going to your local vet because a vet will charge a lot of money for a spay and neuter. So finding the cheap way to do that was really important. Anyways, fast forward several years later, Mama Kitty is what we named her because she had kittens on our, <laughs> our property. She mm-hmm. still hangs around. She mouses for us. She, um, we obviously have water on the property, so she always has water for for herself, especially on those really, really hot summer days here. Um, And then she gets fed a couple times a week. She doesn't get fed every single day. So she's not dependent on us, but she does have that resource. So she she will have a steady source of food, but it's small enough that she still gets mice and squirrels and other rodents on the property and frankly helps us out. So it's, it's a very symbiotic relationship and that's why it's really important to get the cats fixed and not just trap and dump them somewhere. Um, So I read an article recently that says our County has about 66,000 feral cats. And um, this last year, the Fresno TNR group has spayed and neutered almost 6,000. The year is not over. So they will probably hit 6,000 by the end of the year. So if you think about that, 66,000 divided by 6,000, 11 years, granted, they're all going to be making babies in the meantime, but that's a huge dent in Mm -hmm. that population. And Mm -hmm. so if we can continue moving forward and um, getting people to fix not only the community cats, but make sure that when they get gifted with a dumpster cat or a a truck cat or wherever this cat (laughs) comes from, and you make Mm -hmm. that cat you know, a part of your family, make sure you get them fixed because mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's another thing. A lot of people are like, well, it's an inside cat. Okay. But cats are wily little creatures. If they get out and it's not fixed, now you got babies and <laughs> kittens are all cute and stuff on Instagram, but they are <laughs> very neat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very I <bet>. terrible, so <laughs> you don't want that if you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. And so on average, like how much does it cost to neuter spay an animal? So if you go to an actual vet and you're getting your personal animal, well, and I, I don't know the price for dogs, but for cats, um, I, I want to say it's in the hundreds of dollars. Uh, this particular nonprofit, Fresno TNR, they do, it's $30, $30 a cat. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, it's very, very reasonable. And they have such an amazing community. So if you really can't afford that, which for some people, $30, I mean, that's the the make or break for them getting to their next paycheck, right? So 
if they can't afford it, so many people in the community will jump up and sponsor. And mm-hmm. so there's always an option to get the animal fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the shelters real quick. Uh, one thing that I've always kind of been worried about shelters is, and I think part of it is because of like movies, but you know, there's people that do things like dog fighting and stuff. Right. And so when I think of a shelter, sometimes I think about like, they might be abusing the animal or there's other maybe sketchy stuff going on. So do you have any um, maybe red flags or green flags that I guess we should look for when we are considering like an animal shelter? Um, Well, probably just talking to the people that work there. Um, Last year, we were not dog people. Like I never grew up with a dog. I don't know what to do with a dog. I, but they were really full. And because we had such a good relationship with them because of what we try to do with the cats, I said, let's go foster a dog for three weeks. And so we went and I said, exactly what I just said right now, like, look, I'm not a dog person. Give me the easiest dog that you have. (laughs) And so they were really accommodating because obviously they need the help. It is in their best interest to do what is going to help them the most. And adopting out a dog who is aggressive is not going to help them because that family is going to turn around and return the dog. So it is in their best interest to give you the best animal for your needs. And they will share as much history as they have. For example, the dog that we fostered was not a dog fighting dog, but was probably a um, breeder of dog fighting dogs. She was a pit bull um, and she was definitely a mama many times over. So, you know, they try to give as much history as possible, but there are some dogs that they will not adopt out because they don't trust that dog uh to just any family. Um, When we were there, obviously, in addition to having a conversation about fostering, they gave us a a tour of the facilities. Their facilities, this particular shelter, their facilities are pretty new. So they were able to show us around and they said, this dog right here seems kind of nice, but he freaks out. He's been here for four years. Can you imagine that? Four years but we won't adopt him out to someone that we don't know can take care of him because we don't know what he'll do and he'll just turn back up here or he will bite someone and we'll have to euthanize him. And this keep in mind is from a, a very, very full, very, um, you know, high, high turnover kill shelter in Fresno. Again, I'm using that term a little bit aggressively. They do everything in their power not to euthanize an animal, but they knew this dog, he's the perfect example, been there four years. If that doesn't say no kill, I don't know what does, right? But they won't adopt them out because they don't want the risk of having to euthanize a perfectly healthy dog. Maybe behaviorally, he needs some more work and they are continuing to work with him. But some trauma is so deep that, you know, we, sh- we should know that as humans. So some trauma is so deep that it cannot be resolved that quickly. Um, and they were aware of that. And they really had everyone's best interest at heart, not only the dog, but also making sure that, you know, any family um, that was looking was well aware of what was going on and could make a good decision. 
So, yeah, I think, you know, just talking to people, what I wouldn't do is go in and walk the rows and say, I want that one. Because you don't know, and it might not be the best one for you. So they, they know the dogs better than you. They're not perfect. They don't have perfect histories of the dogs, but, um, or cats for that matter. But, you know, they just talking and having a conversation and sharing what you're looking for in a pet is incredibly helpful. Mm. Um, and you said you had a cat. Uh, is there any advice that you have for like anybody interested in getting a cat? Um, a, someone who has had a cat before or someone who's never had a, uh, a cat? I guess maybe never had a cat and they're interested in getting one. So other than like, you know, neutering, spaying them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, is there any like advice that you would have to like a new cat owner? Yeah, I mean, you have to know same thing what you're looking for. Um, if you want a more active cat, then you need to be prepared to play with that cat and give them um, the attention and the tools that they need to be happy in your home. Uh, that's a, I think, a really common mistake for young families. They get a kitten, and kittens are little terrors. Okay. They will destroy your house, they'll scratch, they're adorable, but they they really can do quite a bit of damage if you don't give them toys, if you aren't interacting with them, if you are not, and they say like cats aren't trained, they are, they will be in tune with you. Our, Our cat, when he was a kitten, was an absolute nightmare. And we taught him that he will always be safe when we hold him because we all, we didn't drop him. Even though cats, you know, land on their feet, we always put him down on his feet. And so slowly over time, he realized, okay, I don't need to struggle in your arms because you're going to handle me securely. Right. Um, And so same, same thing for other animals, whatever it is that you're wanting them to be, you need to be involved in that training process. If you want a little kitten who's a terror, then you're going to have to <laughs> continue playing with them and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> if you're the opposite and you do not want a very active cat, then you need to be looking at seniors and, you know, you need to maybe take them home and foster for a few days because all animals from the shelter are dealing with a little bit of, um, you know, anxiety and stress. So their personality when they get home on that very first day is very likely to change over the course of the next few days to the next few weeks because they don't know that they have now been rescued. This is a new environment to them. They just think it's a new shelter and it's just as scary. So for them to learn that this, no, this is where I live now. This is my home. I'm safe in my home. You know, it's going to take them a little bit of time to acclimate to that. And cats are no different. So um, if you want a really calm cat, get an older cat, take them home for a little bit. Most shelters, actually, I've never heard of a shelter not allowing this, but most shelters will allow you to foster to adopt. Um, And so, yeah, you just become an official foster. It's like immediate. They can do the paperwork almost immediate. You can take the animal home, see how you feel, see how they feel. And I mean, most of the time you will be a foster fail. But if for whatever reason there really is a, a, a problem with having that animal in your home, 
it's it's still a win-win because you've still given the animal the opportunity to de-stress outside of the shelter. Mm-hmm. And you can still take the animal back to the shelter and then they can get a new home. And they have learned about the animal because you can provide feedback about what that animal did in your presence. So mm-hmm. it's it's a really a positive thing for, for everyone. Mm. I just had a funny thought. I've noticed like cats like stretch a lot. I wonder if like certain yoga poses were like based off of cats. <laughs> well, I mean, up dog and down dog were <laughs> certainly based off a dog. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they were based off of cats, but there, there was something interesting that I read actually pretty recently. And it talked about, have you ever noticed that cats stretch so much? And yeah, they sleep a lot, but they stretch so much. And it's because they need to like reawaken their bodies to be agile so that they can land mm. on their feet. So we mm. can learn something from that. Every time mm. we get up, we should take some time to stretch. Even if you are like, let's say, you know, you work at a, a desk job or something and you stand up to take a break, reach your hands over your head, like stretch, have a nice long spine. Don't be embarrassed to do that. You know, stretching will make you feel good in the moment and will help, you know, your longevity for the day, for life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Kelly, so my final question for you today, and it kind of loops back into yoga. So what advice do you have to a young person that's interested in getting started in yoga? Um, so we talked about trying out some different studios. Um, I think that really is probably the best way to do that. Uh, you you can usually get a free class or maybe a free week. Um, so just try a couple of different studios in your area, or if you're lucky enough, maybe your gym provides some different kinds of yoga. If you don't have access to either of those things, maybe you're in you know, a rural community and so there are no gyms or studios in your area, get online and go on YouTube. And there are all kinds of different classes, long ones, short ones, um, beginner, there are even really challenging intermediate and advanced classes. So go try something, um, take a day off, maybe don't do it back to back, <laughs> see how you feel, uh, and then try something else. And the more you try, the more you'll have comparison to see what you like. Um, and yeah, you'll be able to move forward which, with whatever is the best option for you. All right. Uh, before I let you go, Kelly, uh, where or how can people connect with you online? Yeah. So um, obviously, I would love for you to all watch my videos on YouTube, uh, my channel, and also my Instagram are Kelly's Yoga Mat. Uh, so that's pretty easy to find. I also have a website, but the website really is going to drive you back to my videos on YouTube. Um, so I would recommend starting there. I would love to practice with you. So please, you know, feel free to uh, join and uh, like, comment, all my stuff. I would appreciate it. Uh, like I said before, I'm not there for the monetary side of things. You really, there's like no money to be made in yoga on YouTube, but I really do want people to have access to feeling better. All right. Well, Kelly, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.